Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book The Dream Betrayed, Religious Challenge of the Working Class, by the American Lutheran scholar Karen L. Bloomquist, published by Fortress Press in 1990. However, before we go any further with that exploration, I would first like to briefly address the long hiatus that has occurred between the airing of this episode and the last episode of this series. That hiatus was entirely unplanned and came about as a consequence of some personal and vocational issues that were both unforeseen and disruptive in their effect. I want to apologise to everyone for the delay in getting a new episode to air and to thank you for your patience. Hopefully no further disruptions will occur and normal service will now be restored. In any event, let's not delay any further. This is episode 16, The Dream Betrayed, part 4, The Dominance of Sin. So far we have explored Bloomquist's analysis of the situation of the working class and how the church often exacerbates its condition of servitude and injustice by articulating a mythology of work that concords with the prevailing culture's construction of work and its meaning in human life. Moreover, by failing to take seriously the yearning of the working class for liberation, The church not only enacts its own peculiar forms of classism, it also impoverishes its capacity to activate the transformative power of the gospel. Bloomquist argues that the challenge for the church is to understand how it can declare the gospel in a way that embeds itself in the realities faced by the working class, all the while offering both a critique of that reality and a vision of a viable, liberating alternative. This alternative, she argues, is available through political theology, which enables the working class to identify both its own victimization as well as the victimization of others, thereby providing a basis for a critical realism that counters both superficial optimism and false pessimism. Through political theology, historical agency is rediscovered through the experience of the victims in history, which in turn breaks down the tendency towards sacralism, that is, the argument that salvation can be attained through submission to powerful cultural, social and political forces in which God is identified with the victors of any given social historical context. 
but for the church, the challenge still remains. How does the gospel make a difference to the realities faced by the working class? This central pastoral issue is of more than academic interest. Grace, after all, is entirely foreign to the core theme of consumerist capitalism. Namely, you are what you make of yourself. In other words, modernity's myth of the autonomous, all-powerful, all-capable individual who can achieve whatever they want if only they work hard enough is diametrically opposed to the gospel's proclamation of a God who invites us into relationship in which salvation occurs not through our own efforts, but through the unmerited action of divine love. In other words, faith involves a surrender to the reality that we cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. Salvation comes only from God, and only as a consequence of God's free election to love us unconditionally and without qualification. Overcoming this hurdle starts with identifying the way in which sin entraps people within their socio-historical context. For this task, Bloomquist argues that it is unhelpful to begin with the supposition that sin is the activity of the individual as a free agent, primarily because the freedom which workers assume they possess is undermined by their reality of servitude. Therefore, approaching sin from the perspective of free agency merely conforms to culturally normative views of what sin is, views that contradict the gospel's exploration of sin as a reality in human life. Bloomquist, in describing the reality of workers in modernity, has already noted that they have lost a sense of themselves as historical subjects, and that the remedial action they take to overcome their condition only strengthens their bondage to the claims of corporatist capitalism. This bondage consists of perpetuating the myth that sin is only relevant to the realm of private morality as distinct from the public realm of structural injustice. In order to overcome this separation between private and public, sin needs to be viewed as the dominating power over individual experience rather than individual experience in its particular forms. Put another way, the starting point for any discussion of sin in the context of the working class needs to be what has been done to workers rather than what have they themselves done. Sin as a distorting power of domination that controls and deforms human life must be articulated in the language of social, corporate and structural injustice. At the same time, this understanding needs to be held in tension with the notion of personal responsibility, a tension that can be maintained by understanding the personal dimension of sin within its socio-historical context. Bloomquist argues the historical manifestation of sin as people acting against God and God's will for human life. This acting against takes the form of those structures and institutions which humans have created, and whose ideologies reign over and enslave the lives of working-class people. Awakening this realization is key to changing the commonly held misconceptions about what sin is, as well as challenging the structural domination sin perpetuates. Bloomquist notes that the sin of structural injustice 
does not happen by chance. It is a reality for which human beings are directly responsible. Sin is not the product of demonic, evil forces that exist apart from human life. It is evident in the oppressive structures of injustice which human beings have created and which become demonic in their effect through their consequent enslavement of human existence. One manifestation of sin is the destruction of popular cultures that sustain human community and provide a sense of identity to the individual. The sin of structural injustice replaces these cultures with a fragmented competitive ethos that compels the individual to think, talk, act and dress like the person he or she desires to become in a consumerist parody of communal interrelationship. The dream of upward mobility and of access to the social standing and material resources which it provides has become the alien power that controls and dominates the lives of working-class people. Yet within this reality, sin continues to be thought of in individual terms as the product of free agents acting out their own agendas. This denies the reality that structural injustice is the cumulative outcome of the individual sinfulness that creates the institutional and ideological forces of dominance and oppression. Moreover, it fails to understand that most working-class people do not see themselves in some post-enlightenment philosophical sense, that is, as free agents able to exercise genuine freedom, but as objects controlled by forces and powers beyond their control. In their desperate desire for upward mobility, the working class mistakenly believes that if they work hard enough for long enough, they will acquire the status and benefits of the people whom they presently regard as being in charge, the ones whom they presume have genuine freedom. Yet despite the prevalence and ubiquity of this sense of powerlessness and domination, the forces that control and distort the law so amorphous and anonymous that it becomes impossible to understand it as the product of the sins of individuals wielding unjust power. The owners of capital and their decision-making processes are so removed from the lives of working-class people and the managers by whom they are supervised that instead of holding them accountable for the impact of those decisions on the common good, it becomes easier to blame more concrete scapegoats instead. Immigrants, business rivals, foreign competitors, modernization, or trade unions. Moreover, because sin is conceived in individual and not social terms, the evil perpetrated by individual capitalists can be tempered by the selfless activity of their victims. If we perform more efficiently or work more effectively, our value as individuals will be recognized by the powers that be, enabling us to survive and maybe even thrive despite their worst depredations. Thus, the sin of oppressive power is normalized in human life. We resign ourselves to its contradictions and crises and resolve to passively go along with the status quo of domination and control, never imagining that another alternative might be possible. 
At this point, Bloomquist turns to a discussion of Luther's theology of sin. Luther, Bloomquist argues, posited that sin was not so much a set of acts as a state of unbelief, one in which the human person turns away from God. Sin does not come from humanity but to us, and it becomes ours when we succumb to it. For Luther, it is the effect of sin that is critical. Sin, while active, is not felt precisely because it co-opts us into believing that we are behaving righteously. We proceed upon our smug assumptions of sanctity in which we become ungodly through our very denial of sin and our bondage to it. The power of sin is its very capacity to make us underestimate its insidious control and its consequences. This is the dilemma which confronted the religious authorities of both Luther's and Jesus' time. The medieval papacy, by morphing over centuries into an interlocking edifice of religious, social and political institutions, had become an oppressive power threatening the very salvation of those whom it presumed to save. Likewise, the temple leadership had turned the Mosaic law from a revelation of God's will for human life into an instrument of judgment and condemnation. In both cases, the sin at the heart of both institutions was the idolatry of righteousness, the inversion of God's good intent into an experience of negation. And it is this very insidiousness, this power to co-opt and corrupt, that reveals the sin that lies at the heart of working-class experience. Even as they accept the ideology of consumer capitalism and attempt to justify themselves by living up to its demands and expectations, the working class are plunged deeper into the abyss of domination and dehumanization. The very thing which is sold to the working class as the source of their salvation, upward mobility, becomes the basis for their failure. Thus is born the vicious cycle in which workers attempt to play by the rules, fail, try harder, continue to experience failure, and eventually lapse into despair and apathy. Bloomquist argues, however, that for Luther, this moralistic understanding of sin did not constitute a true knowledge of God or of God's work. Indeed, sin viewed this way only serves to reinforce human bondage to its demonic power, precisely because it mistakes moral living for adherence to rules, thereby entrenching the ideologies and institutions of unjust power that deform human life. Moreover, once it gains this ascendancy, despair arises because there seem to be no alternative possibilities. The domination of sin comes to be seen as the way things are. Sin becomes an all-encompassing, enclosed totality. And yet it is by acknowledging our entrapment that we begin to break open the assumption that our lives embody God's normative intention for humanity. If we name or acknowledge our bondage, rather than living under the illusion of our autonomy, we see the possibility for a new awareness and restoration. And it is awareness of this new possibility that brings us back to grace, 
and the relevance of grace to the dilemma of the working class. The gospel proclamation of God's unmerited grace directly challenges consumer capitalism's ideology of the all-powerful individual and the idolatry of self-justifying righteousness which it upholds. And it is this ideology and idolatry into which the working class have placed their trust, enslaving them to the righteousness-through-work paradigm through which corporatist capitalism exerts control. But if the idolatry of the autonomous individual is at the heart of the structural and institutional injustices that exert demonic control over working-class lives, what is the relationship between the personal and social dimensions of sin? If personal responsibility and accountability emerge through collective and communal struggle against sin, how can it do so in a way that accounts for the reality of working-class lives? To explore these questions, Bloomquist turns to the liberation theologian Dorothea Zerla and her discussion of sin, which she describes as a disruption of the relationship between God and humankind that likewise disrupts the relationship with, it, with ourselves, others, and the whole of creation. But the insidiousness of this disruption means we succumb to being cut off from life without even being aware of the fact. Instead, the cynicism in the face of our creeping sense of powerlessness, which emerges, normalizes this life deficiency, reducing us to the passive victims of what we imagine to be our circumstances. Sin becomes a kind of death, and in the rule of consumer capitalism over our lives, the ideology that subordinates human dignity to profit generation and economic growth becomes an absolute to which human lives and communities are sacrificed. What this means is that while we are captive to the structural sin of corporatist capitalism, we sin personally by our collaboration with the dominance and injustice which it embodies. In order to maintain this dialectic between structural and personal sin, we must prevent ourselves from collapsing into either dismal pessimism or naive optimism. Sin cannot be opposed merely by moral virtue, but by a faith which struggles against cynicism, breaking through to a sense of personal responsibility that rejects ideas of fate or inevitability. The promise of grace that lies at the heart of the gospel is the vision of an open future that God unfolds for us, a grace that is discerned through our interactions with others, through which we can appreciate the discrepancy between what is and what God wills. The freedom that thus emerges is not the idolatry of autonomy, but the power to work with others in order to create structures of mutuality rather than structures of dominance or control. Bloomquist argues that in order for this freedom to be experienced, however, the concurrent feelings of powerlessness and the need to take personal responsibility cannot be addressed without a supportive communal context. It is within this context that the pain and anger generated by the realities of working-class life are mediated by the experience of grace, enabling not just personal but societal transformation. 
God becomes known as the one who sustains the self in community, a self that is liberated from the idolatrous promises of the neoliberal dream. Faith and an awareness of God emerge in the midst of socio-historical reality rather than apart from it. This enables a synthesis between the religious view of sin as rebellion against God and the social understanding of sin as injustice and oppression. Sin is no longer a privatized moral concept that separates individual conduct from social interaction, a division that facilitates the status quo and those who benefit from it. Rather, it becomes a means through which the socio-historical structures of domination and dehumanization are exposed and overthrown. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Ergasia. To leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.